I see people who are going through a miscarriage and they say, I've never heard of this before. Mm. And that's really difficult because then it's my job and it's an honor that it's my job to, you know, support these women going through this situation. But then I have to give them quite a ton of information when they're really not in that sort of, you know, right place to be hearing about this for the first mm. time. And it's very traumatic. Thanks for listening to the Trouble Club podcast. If you'd like to know more about our events or become a member, do check us out on our website, www.thetroubleclub.com. You can also find this linked in the description below this podcast. Hello, everyone, and um, welcome to this evening's Untroubled event, um, Busting Myths on Women's Health with Gynae Geek, Dr. Anita Mitra. Um, my name is Tara, and I'm part of the Trouble Club curation team. I think a lot of you tonight are members, but in case you're not, um, let me just briefly introduce the club. Um, Trouble Club is a women's-led um, talks and dinners club um, where you hear some of the finest voices talking on everything from politics to fiction. Um, we're normally meeting in central London um, on a Monday evening and we have these wonderful uh, debates and discussions, but um, obviously we were hoping to have an an event in person very soon um but i don't think that's going to be possible just yet um but thank you again everyone for joining us virtually and supporting Trouble club during this time um and also an apology from me to anyone that was intending on coming to the previous Trouble club event untroubled rather event um unfortunately our last speaker was unwell on the day and couldn't make it so i'm glad that we're here tonight and we've got wonderful Anita to join us. Um, so I think most people have, are coming on through, so I will, yeah, get us started. Um, so Anita is an NHS doctor, gynecologist and obstetrician, um, and I'm going to let her explain um, about her platform, how she's also known as the Gyne Geek in a second. But I also wanted to sing her praises for a moment um, and say that she writes and speaks very widely. Um, she's written for magazines such as Women's Health, Cosmopolitan, um, Marie Claire, I've seen her articles on Vogue online, and she's even appeared on ITV this morning and um, Women's Hour on Radio 4. Um, and before you all came on, we were talking about her doing the audio for her book that she published last year, which was The Gynae Geek, Your No-Nonsense Guide to Down There Healthcare. So um, thank you so much for joining us, Anita. Um, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Um, so for everyone, just to say how the event will go tonight, uh, we know that women's health is an enormous, enormous ish, uh, topic and so many things we could talk about. So we've picked a few things to delve into, um, you know, before we go into um, specific questions. And I've had some questions already from you in advance and I hope you will send in more. Um, so just as a reminder with Zoom is that you've got the Q&A box down below so please do pop in your questions. Um, you can also um, send in questions anonymously so if you have something that you don't want people to know it's you asking then you know please do just click the anonymous box um, and we will ask the questions for you. Um, Oh, and also when you do ask a question, if you're in person, um, then Ellie, who is behind the scenes, will um, unmute you and it would be lovely to hear you ask your question live. 
So you're not just hearing my voice all evening. Um, so fab. And Ellie's also here if you're having any tech issues. So please just shout in the chat and she can help you out. Okay, I think that's all the admin out the way. So hi, Anita. <laughs> Um, and thank you again for joining us. Um, I thought we could start the evening. You could tell us um, a bit more about your background and what led you to, you know, build the Gynae Geek and all your social media and website. Yeah, absolutely. So um, thank you for having me. Um, so my name is Dr. Anita Mitra. Um, so my surname is the Greek word for uterus, um, which is quite fitting because yeah. I work in obstetrics and gynecology. Um, also, just to say, I am coming to you tonight from my inflatable chair, um, which I didn't realise until now is very on brand because it's exactly the same colour. <laughs> but anyway, when I'm not trying to brand myself um, according to the occasion, I work in um, NHS hospitals. So I work um, providing care for women. Um, and so obstetrics means looking after people who are pregnant. Um, I'm attending a labour ward and when they're having their deliveries so we um, do caesarean sections, we assist people um, with their deliveries, look after people in antenatal clinic, do scans um, and then uh, gynaecology is anything kind of um, female, um, female organ related um, when you're not pregnant, so all the hormonal stuff that all of us um, kind of love and hate, um, periods, um, problems with um, prolapse, um, lots of just such a variety of things that we do. Um, and so I started uh, my platform Gynae Geek a few years ago because I was quite frustrated uh, by the lack of information that, that was available for women that was engaging. Um, and one of the things that really struck me was that, for example, the leaflets that I was giving people about contraception were written mm. before these women were born. So they were reading the same contraception <laughs> that their mother could have been reading. And I just thought, wow. crazy. Um, and I, um, so I actually started it, um, at a stage in my career when I was doing my PhD, um, so mm. a PhD about the vaginal microbiome, and I was working in the colposcopy clinic where people come if they're having an abnormal smear test. Mm. Uh, and so this is a time when often I'm seeing very young people who are coming to see a healthcare professional for the first time, who maybe mm. actually don't have any symptoms, they've just been for this screening test. But I realized that people had so many questions, just general questions about um, women's health, about their periods, for example, about contraception. Um, and they were the kind of things that you probably don't really want people to Google. <laughs> yeah. I noticed that we were having these really interesting conversations. And uh, so when you learn to do colposcopy, so that's the examination that we do um, when you yeah. have a normal smear test, you have to have someone who's your mentor. Um, and at the end of each session, you have sort of a debrief with them. And I would always say to my mentor, you know, I had this really fascinating conversation with a patient about X, Y, and Z. And he said, oh, someone asked you about that. And so it was very much a big learning curve, but I mm. realized that actually, as doctors, we know lots of information, we know lots of facts um, and, you know, but what we might think is important to our patient or to a woman isn't necessarily what they want to know. Mm. And when I started, you know, really listening to people um, and 
started realizing that there's just so much more valuable information that we can put out there that women don't know how to access or maybe isn't very reliable when you Google it. So that's why I started my platform with a lot of persuasion from a lot of friends because you know there's so much imposter syndrome when you start to do something mm -hmm. out there. And this was a few years ago when I really saw Instagram as kind of a place where almost a bit like for self-promotion where mm. everyone was kind of like posting like their best uh, their best brunch or their hashtag morning abs and things like that and I thought oh I don't know I don't, you know I don't want to do this to kind of like yeah myself I just really want to put information out there um and there weren't that many doctors on social media at the time um so yeah I just kind of decided to go for it and I just thought that it'd be like my mum and my friends liking my posts but then sort of it just kind of spiraled um and it's just really incredible because if I'm in a clinic for a morning or an afternoon on a really busy day, I might see 12 patients in clinic. Mm. And so that's quite a small number of people who I can give information to. Yeah. Using social media now at the moment, I mean, I mean, I, I really don't care how many followers I'd like to have, but I don't you know, have a lot of followers. But I have 112,000 followers. Yeah. Amazing. Like information to 112,000 people where I can only see 12 people in, mm. in the hospital. And that's really, I would never have expected that. And I just think that it's, it's really incredible. It's really nice for me, obviously, to see that people are interested in what I do, but it just shows that there is such a hunger and a demand for mm. engaging reliable um, healthcare information. So I hope that's what I'm providing. And uh, I just really love to answer questions that are important to women, because ultimately it doesn't matter to me what, I think people want to know. I really want to put the information out there that people need. Oh yeah, well, it's amazing. And you've had like, obviously like such an amazing response from thinking it would just be your mum and your friends. Clearly not. Um, oh, still my biggest fan though, I have to say. Ah, of course, of <laughs> course. Um, so I guess that leads me like quite nicely into like what we were talking about on the phone, which is like, how, how do you think we've gotten here to like a position where like people just don't really know a lot about their gynae health and like there's a real appetite to like understand better, but we, we still don't know about all sorts of like specific conditions. It'd be interesting to hear what you think. I think the information out there that we get at school is, is really terrible. I mean, I remember when I was maybe about mm, 12 years old, being in the school hall and the boys were taken into another room and all the girls stayed in one room and we had this talk about periods. And all I remember is this kind of conversation about hatching an egg. Um, and so my understanding from that conversation was that an, a period was your egg cracking and the contents coming out of your vagina. So, I mean, that's what I thought, which is kind of ironic, considering that, you know, uh, several decades later, I talk to people about periods all day, every day. Um, and I have done quite a lot of reading since then, just to reassure anyone. Um, but I don't know what the boys I went to school with think. So how do they support their partners, their wives, mm. uh, their family, their, you know, their sisters, their mums, when they're going through problems with their periods? The other thing is that I think that all we really learned, besides the, the egg hatching, um, was that if you have sex, you'll get pregnant. And yeah. there's are huge gaps. There's nothing about what's, what's normal. And that's one of my big things, is just kind of teaching people um, what's normal mm. with their bodies, because that's how you recognize when something isn't normal. And that's, mm -hmm. that's kind of like first aid. That, yeah. that, that's, you know, how do you, how do you know that your period is 
not meant to be so painful that you're rolling around on the floor for the first two days. Or, you know, as one of my patients, she features in the first um, chapter of the book, she used to sit on, on a beach towel um, for the first wow. day of the period because they were so heavy and she thought that was normal. Mm. And I feel dreadful that people are in this situation. Um, the other thing is, you know, we don't learn anything about fertility. So I find people who are like, well, so how do I actually like start to think about getting pregnant when, mm -hmm. you know, it kind of seems like the most obvious thing, but actually I would say pregnancies are either very planned, really unplanned or kind of something that happens in between. Mm. But we don't know how to necessarily plan a pregnancy. You, you know, you think you might do because you maybe read in a, ma a woman's magazine, maybe like take some folic acid or something yeah. like that, but you know, there's no proper education out there. And then you can absolutely forget learning about the menopause or anything mm. to do with menopause. You know, you spend, you know, a huge portion of your life, about a third of your life in the menopause and you don't know anything about it. And the other thing that I, you know, one of the reasons why I really, really um, seek to put this information out there is for me, one of the hardest things is when somebody's going through an awful situation. So, I mean, unfortunately, mm. miscarriage springs to mind. Yeah. I see people who are going through a miscarriage and they say, I've never heard of this before. Mm. And that's really difficult because then it's my job and it's an honor that it's my job to, you know, support these women going through this situation. But then I have to give them quite a ton of information when they're really not in that sort of, you know, right place to be hearing about this for the first mm. time. And it's very traumatic to go through something like that when you've never heard of it and you think that you don't know anybody else who's been in that situation there's i really have noticed that, that you know there's so much comfort in just knowing that you're not alone even in the worst yeah. worst situations just to know you're not alone can actually be incredibly comforting um and so i just really wanted to sort of as well as educate people to start that conversation because yeah. it's quite hard isn't it if you've never spoken to anyone about your periods before to be like so Hey Tara, like, what are your periods like? Do, you know, do you think this is normal? What's happening to me? Yeah, I, I find a lot of people tagging their friends in my posts, and I think that's great because that can be a great segue into a conversation. Like, oh, hey, look, I just read this on Instagram. What do you think it can be a way of starting a conversation? Um, so yeah, I just uh, there's so many things to that we need to be better educated about because it's pretty abysmal what what we what we are taught. Mm. And I'm, the worst thing, I hate it when people say, I'm really sorry, but I don't, I don't know, I should know about this. Why should you know if you've never been taught? Yeah, and do you think that's, do you think that is because they're, they're, we don't have the language for it? Or do you think that people are, uh, you know, are worried about not being taken seriously by either their family or, you know, or their GPs? Um, do you think there's like a, a fear of like, oh, you know, you're just being a bit like hysterical? I think, um, well, that's why women had hysterectomies, isn't it? Because they thought that women were hysterical. Yeah. <laughs> I think that you've really kind of like brought up two 
massive, massive problems. So first of all, the language thing, I just think is so important. And um, so I am an ambassador for the Eve Appeal. Yeah. Uh, so they are a gynecological cancer charity, um, but their work is not just about, uh, you know, helping people with cancer. It's all about learning about the symptoms of cancer, but then also they do a lot of work to really help people to um, you know, have these conversations, learn about their body, learn what's normal. And they do a lot of work about, you know, talking about the right um, body parts. And I think that that can be really difficult because, you know, if you want to go to your doctor, so mm. I know I always kind of like to portray, you know, the fact that doctors are normal human beings on online, um, which can sound a little bit obvious, but I, I just think it's no, really- you're, you're super humans, right? You just <laughs> exist in this like special space, right? <laughs> It's just so important because we have to, we, there has to be some humanity brought to medicine. It, it can't just be stiff old people wearing white coats. You know, we don't wear white coats anymore. Um, but, uh, you know, it doesn't matter what you want to come and call things to me. You don't have to say, you know, I've got menorrhagia or anything like that. I'm not expecting you to use yeah. things like that. Just, you know, I, I have a problem. Um, you know, I've got this itchy patch. Um, it's down there. That's fine. You don't have to start using anatomical terms. Um, but if you want to, that's absolutely fine. I had a patient once who came and she said, I've got a problem with my pussy. And I was like, that's fine. If that's what you feel comfortable calling it. I mean, yeah, I know my colleagues would probably not handle that, but that's their problem to deal with. Um, and, and so that's one aspect, but unfortunately there are so many women who have been really badly treated by medical professionals. And I just can't yeah. afford enough. Uh, and I think a lot of that is because there hasn't been this two-way conversation that we can now have because, or partly because of social media, that, you know, if I say to a patient, well, you know, you've got, you've got heavy periods, they're painful, but you know, it's part of being a woman. Yeah. Beforehand, we would get away with saying that. And, and some of my colleagues unfortunately still do. But now because of social media, people can say, you know, this is how I felt. And it's so important to hear yeah. from that, that side. And, and for too long, women's problems have really been dismissed. Uh, and it's just not right. And that's why, you know, I think personally for me, being a doctor on social media has really helped because I've been able to hear those conversations where maybe, you know, a patient might not like something I say, but it's very difficult to turn around in a clinic situation where, you know, ultimately, I think there often are feelings that you can't say what you think to a doctor or, you know, mm. we're in control of that consultation such a power dynamic isn't there definitely definitely and i think there's a lot of work to do you were looking for trouble and you found it we are a special society a talks and dinners club where you can hear some of the finest voices talking on everything from politics to fiction they all happen to be women from evenings with margaret atwood and gloria steinem to our monthly news dinners and culture clubs there's so much to enjoy and so many brilliant people to meet learn more by visiting our website at www.thetroubleclub.com or clicking the link in the description of this episode um, there's a lot of work around the language but we really need to start listening to our patients more. Um, and I think that's just one of the problems because also if you go to a doctor and they're like, no, no, that's not a problem, honey. Then you're like, okay, well, I've, I've been someone. Yeah. And it's a lot to then think, you know what? I'm actually going to go back and try and find someone else. Yeah. I mean, and that's, that's really tough. Like if you've been dismissed months, you know, stopped you from having those conversations. Exactly. And I, I love how like your whole work is like the opposite of that, which is let's talk more about it. And just because I'm interested, have you had like 
what do you get asked the most about like on your on your social media platforms do people like is there a particular like myth or topic that people always want to like ask you about yeah oh my gosh there's so many but the, the most popular thing is always about discharge because we always think so i've gone there and said the d no yeah of course. <laughs> this is what this event is for I always think discharge is something awful, but you know, it's, it's how your body works. Um, and so, you know, discharge will be completely different at different times of the cycle. So after you have finished your period, it can be quite dry um, and, you know, not a lot of it. And then often, you know, as you get towards ovulation, assuming you're not taking, for example, the combined or contraceptive pill, your discharge mm. becomes very, very watery and often quite a lot of it. Some people feel that they need to wear a pad at that point in their cycle. Um, and again, that's actually a really healthy sign that mm. you're having that discharge. It's a sign that you're ovulating mm. uh, and then again as you go towards your period it can become quite um often quite thick and sometimes a bit yellow maybe a bit gray and you know all these mm. fluctuations throughout the cycle are really normal and this is something particularly i've noticed because i think so many people are stopping taking the um the pill these days mm. um, for various reasons um i think that there's a lot to be said for sort of bad information on social media but you know mm. i'm not a pill pusher never ever been paid by a pill company i've got no vested interest i just want my patients to have what treatment or contraception is right for them um but you know lots of people have stopped taking it and then so the way it works is it actually stops ovulation mm-hmm. then maybe you've been on the pill for years 15 years and then suddenly you're like what is this like egg white in my underwear every month? And that causes loads of, um, mm. loads of sort of concern and anxiety. And so that's, again, just something that, you know, you might not go and see a doctor about, but you kind of want to know. Um, and that, again, is that whole, you know, it's nothing abnormal, but it's really important that we do explain to people why it's normal and why it's not yeah. normal. So that's a very, very common one. And the other one, I just get so many questions in my DMs about, should I take a pregnancy test? Um, often people do expose quite a lot what they've done with their partner. Um, so you know far too much about random people's uh, love lives. Um, very confidential. I would never, um, you know, expose of course. Um, it's really difficult because people do send me these questions and I, I can't mm. answer um, one-on-one because I don't have the time but also um, I'm not insured to do yeah yeah I can imagine um, but I do use this information to kind of shape um, mm. things I'm going to post about um, yeah. so it's very much um, woman-led I, I love that I love that I, I'm you know it's like you still you're still getting the feedback even if you can't always give people the obviously the, the one-on-one medical yeah. advice but I mean I we've obviously like whizzed through like you know the, the some of the common like barriers that um that you've seen women facing to finding out about one's health and why we don't necessarily know what we should we should really know about our, about our bodies but i also wanted to touch on some of the like larger more systemic inequalities that i know the nhs and the wider medical community is grappling with um and i know you've posted about this online i've seen it on your instagram um so i you know coming into black history month i'd love to you know for you to speak a bit about like some of the racial inequalities and the work that's being done to address those inequalities within um you know the, the obs and guidance world in particular yeah yeah i mean i think gosh i mean i did a post um a while ago about kind of racial inequalities in obstetrics and gynecology and there's just so many of them um and you know i think 
there's probably two that really kind of like stick in my mind. Um, and so they all really center back to listening to, to women uh, and not having stereotypes. So I think the first thing is that, you know, there's so many studies that have shown that, for example, um, black women are less likely to be um, offered pain relief. Uh, and, and it's just something that we hear all the time. And I hear people saying it, oh, um, she, you know, based on people's backgrounds, not just always black people, um, but you know, oh, she, she's, she's from so-and-so, she's tough. She doesn't need an epidural in labor. Mm. Uh, and that kind of thing, that, that, that's complete stereotyping. I mean, everyone's different. It doesn't matter um, where you're from. If you want pain relief, then absolutely you should be offered it. But it's just those kind of little, little mm. comments that you're thinking, gosh, that's, that's just so wrong. Um, and then, you know, again, it's actually just, Taking this person as a whole and listening to the conversation that you're having with them, if if they if they're in pain, listen to them, listen to their symptoms, and and also you know we get taught you know certain diagnoses are more common in um, certain groups of women. Doesn't mean that you can't have, for example, endometriosis because you're black or Asian or you know that's mm. that's something else that we really need to we really need to deal with because you know. A lot of studies are very flawed. Yeah, I was going to ask: Is it? Do you think it comes from like the ed, you know the studies education? If those were you know had unconscious biases and it's it's filtered through the whole system. We've always kind of learned that you know endometriosis, for example, is a white woman's disease. But is wow. that we haven't actually listened to um, people of other ethnicities, um, and have they felt able to come forward and, and seek help? That's, that's the other thing. Uh, and the other sort of area that I really think we need to, to work on is, um, so, I mean, my PhD was, you know, a lot of the work I did was in smear testing um, and mm -hmm. cervical cancer. And there's lots of data that shows that certain ethnic groups are less um, good at attending their screening, but why? Uh, and, you know, we can look at the stats for as long as you want, but why is this happening? We need to talk to these women and understand, you know, do they understand, first of all, why you need to go for a smear test? I mean, you get this letter that says you need to go for a smear test. I mean, I can't even get to the end of it because I don't really understand what it's saying. It's very confusing the way it's written. And mm -hmm. we can't have this blanket one, one for all, but you know, do, do they understand the letter first of all? Do they speak English? Do they understand what the letter's trying to say? Do they think that this is applicable to them? Because also a lot of the time we, you know, we think that smear testing is only for people who are promiscuous, for example. In some, mm -hmm. in some cultures, it's frowned upon to go for a smear test. So you know, we need to really start speaking to these women, listening to them and understanding why, not just saying, oh, well, these people do they don't go for their smear tests. Why? Yeah, I mean that's yeah, it's not a good enough answer to just be like, it just doesn't just doesn't happen with these group of people. Yeah. And is there anything else that you've seen and from your colleagues or your networks on on you know stuff that's happening more widely in the medical community to to address any of these issues? Because I know we're talking about you know women's health in particular today, but yeah. I mean I can imagine it's something that the NHS is is tackling in all, all manner of. Uh, Areas. Yeah, I think that you know these. There's similar kind of things that happen in all in all specialties, um, but I think just you know making people um, more aware of it because you know I think that the um, the whole kind of you know like Black Lives Matter movement that happened was actually um, I mean it's awful you know 
that this kind of thing had to happen. But it's been a, such a massive eye-opener for people. And it's really great to see, you know, other voices being heard. And, you know, that's what you need. It's all about listening. It's all about creating an awareness and just making people think, oh, is that actually appropriate what I've just said? And I think that we need to, we also need to kind of like breed a culture where it's okay to be like, I'm not really sure if that's the right thing to say, that it's okay to say that to someone without it sort of turning into something very confrontational. I think that we need to be a bit more open um, and just say, you know, I don't, really I don't really like the fact that you said that. I think that that could be interpreted in X, Y, Z way. I think we just need to, yeah, we, we need to be more open about it. Yeah. And do you think that maybe links to like how, we're, how we train? I imagine the way we even like train our doctors is, is going to change you know, from when you were in, in school to how the next generation will be. Definitely. I think that ultimately that's kind of um, where it's going to come from because mm. unfortunately there are some people that you won't change, but it needs to, it needs to start from the very start. Yeah, definitely. And I, I know that, you know, medical school is a really great time to learn about this kind of thing because you're all so open-minded, you, you know, you're learning about so many things. There's so many ways that it can be um, put into the curriculum. I, I think that's probably the most productive way to be honest with you. Yeah, no, one of our, uh, one of our previous speakers, um, Angela Saini was, was trying to suggest that all science, anyone who's in STEM, whatever they do, have to have like a, you know, a course that like, a, you know, for like a month or six weeks that, you know, literally educates you on this because, yeah. you know, she sort of identified that, you know, you might get it in like more of the humanities and arts, but you don't necessarily get it in, in STEM subjects. So maybe, maybe that's the future. Um, I'm aware of time and I know that we've like had quite a few questions come in. So I will have to ask you this question because I'm, in, I'm intrigued in it myself. Um, that obviously, you know, you're in the NHS and we're in coronavirus and, you know, I've, I've read, I'm sure many people watching have read so much about how women are being really impacted, you know, really quite hard by the, the pandemic from, from work to, and health is no different. Um, so is there anything about, you know, some of the impacts or the experiences that you've seen happening at the moment that you're concerned about in terms of women's health? Yeah, um, definitely. I mean, I think women are really disproportionately suffering when it comes mm. to um, the pandemic. Um, I mean, so I have been working um, in maternity units since it happened. And um, so, you know, we barely have done any kind of gynae operating so I know that there's so many women for example who you know have been on really long waiting lists to have you know an operation for endometriosis fibroids investigations for fertility you know all mm. these things that are I mean there are obviously you know reasons for why we've had to do this okay um yeah but it's just these people have been completely forgotten because you know there's people who's um, you know operations have been cancelled and they've got no clue when it's going to happen again um you know we haven't been able to run the clinics um so what i've been doing is mainly focusing around um looking after our, our pregnant women um which obviously is an absolute honor and we're doing the absolute best for them but they've mm -hmm. all you know not had a great time um you know we hear so much about how men are more affected by coronavirus itself but you know these women are being completely forgotten you know the worst thing i i mean telling somebody who's completely on her own who maybe doesn't speak great english that she's having a miscarriage and then she has to phone her partner who's waiting outside in the car park 
probably, you know, she's probably had to wait quite a while to see us as well. So he's desperate to know what's going on. And then she has to explain this thing to him that first of all, she maybe never heard of and never thought was going to happen to her. And that's just a dreadful situation. So, I mean, I've spent a lot of time on FaceTime <laughs> because wow. it's so important yeah. to just try and support these women as much as I can. And they're, they're having to come on their own, being told that they have a miscarriage, being told that their baby has an abnormality that we need to investigate. Um, there's been a lot of talk about people having to deliver on their own. Thankfully, I think in our hospital, we've been really, um, you know, we've really tried our best with that. And so as soon as a woman is on her own in a room, then we will bring the partner and we'll let them know, you know we're gonna be transferring you down, get your partner or your birth partner, whoever's gonna to be to come, mm. just wait outside so that they're ready. Um, but you know, people being in the early stages of labor on their own, it's really terrifying. I mean, God, I hate being a patient in hospital and I've never had to have a baby on my own before. Um, yeah. you know, you're only allowed one birth partner, ordinarily we allow two. Um, mm. But there's people in pubs, with all their friends, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. Um, it's really devastating to see. And, and yeah, this is what we're forgetting. And then, you know, also this, the, not just the people who are, you know, pregnant or unwell, people who, for example, just really want to go and get their screening done. Um, you know, the, there's vital screening, their breast screening. Um, and I've also, you know, seen a lot of women lately coming for blood transfusions because of heavy periods which is something that, this is just my anecdotal experience, mm. but I feel over the last few months, I've prescribed a lot of blood transfusions. Um, That's terrifying. Yes, and I personally think that it's because of the fact that women feel less able to go and see their GP. The GP maybe doesn't, you know, doesn't have appointments. I don't know, I just want to really, you know, really impress on people that you can still call your GP. I know it's not necessarily the same experience, but mm. I'm just really worried that people are sort of worrying about things at home, not not seeking help and not getting the care that they actually really deserve. Um, yeah. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, one of the things that I've just noticed is, is you know, giving more blood transfusions for people who haven't had the treatment that they need for heavy periods, for example. Wow, that is, yeah, no, well, that's already... Yeah, important thing that we should all spread around because it's, it, I mean, I know there'll be, I'm sure you can tell us more that, you know, every sort of specialty is, is struggling, but I always feel like, you know, it's so disproportionate that women get hit from like every angle and other marginalised groups. Um, so we'll move into the Q&A now. Uh, that's all right, Anita. I've already got three questions um, that have been sent in advance and I can see some more popping up. So why don't I do the ones that we've had in advance um, and then we can move to hearing some other people ask. Um, so question number one, um, I've kept these anonymous as well, just, just in case, because I wasn't sure if I had permission. So if you're, if you're a participant and you hear your question, like feel free to claim it if you'd want to. Um, so Anita, do you have any tips for what you do about a dodgy pelvic floor um, which has only manifested itself after the age of 50. Ah, okay, right. So this is a really important question. And this is one of the things that I said earlier, we don't really get taught about um, mm. in school. So your pelvic floor um, is basically composed of muscles and ligaments that basically hold all your organs in. Uh, so if your pelvic floor becomes weak, then you can start to get prolapse. 
So sometimes people say that this feels like a lump in the vagina, um, a dragging sensation. Um, they're less able to empty their bladder properly. Um, sometimes get discomfort when they're having sex. Um, and the other thing is that the, the muscle is really important for uh, making sure that your bladder um, doesn't leak and so some people can get leaks and so you know like we often um, hear people saying like oh gosh I when I laugh I leak or I can't jump on yeah. anymore all these kind of things and and so it can it it will naturally get a little bit weaker as we age okay um, but that's why it's so important that we look after our pelvic floor from a very early age the other mm. time Care about weak pelvic floors is traditionally um, after people have had a baby um, and that doesn't have to be a vaginal delivery because actually just having being pregnant is is kind of like nine months of pressure on the pelvic floor which obviously yeah. increases as um, as your pregnancy grows but it's not just those times and so I've actually noticed a lot of people um, saying that they started to get symptoms of um, leaking um, during lockdown and I think there's not a lot of people are doing lots of different kinds of like workouts so like you know so many <laughs> amazing personal trainers have very kindly put so many free um, mm. like Instagram um, workouts on and things and so people are doing lots of like hip workouts so you've got a lot of pressure on the pelvic floor because it's kind of like a trampoline and mm -hmm. if you're not looking after those springs of the trampoline it's going to sag a little bit there's lots that you can do about it so everybody should be doing pelvic floor exercises. Okay, and this is actually the first line of treatment um, for um, any kind of pelvic floor weakness. Mm -hmm. uh, so on the NHS, um, we have lots of physios who can be really helpful, pelvic floor physios. And I know a lot of people are actually doing quite a lot of on online um, stuff these days. Um, and so there's also an online platform that's been um, started by uh, Fern McCann from um, TOWIE. <laughs> oh, amazing. Um, yeah, she's been really brave and spoken out about her pelvic floor weakness. This, this is something that she's um, produced with always. Um, uh, so there's lots of different places where you can access this, but it's definitely something that you can speak to your GP about. And I think that, you know, I find a lot of women saying, oh, by the way, can I just tell you about this at the end of their consultation when they've come to see me about something else? Or... I'll directly ask them and they'll be like, oh yeah, I do. But you know, that's because I've gone through the menopause. No, it doesn't have to be. It's not mm. something you have to suffer with. Um, and so I would definitely recommend seeking advice. A lot of people can um, get really good um, results from just pelvic floor exercises and, and, um, and physio. It doesn't mean that you need to have an operation or that you need um, medication. So there's, there's lots that can be done. Um, so yeah, give it a shout basically. Amazing. And I think, what you what we've just talked about might lead might link to this question that we also had where um, a guest asked does a prolapse of the uterus inevitably lead to the removal of the womb or are there repair solutions which are possible i don't know if they're connected because you did mention prolapse yeah so, well there's um so the uh, this whole like pelvic floor uh, area and prolapse is actually a really um it, it sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? Just the muscles there, but it's actually a whole like subsection of gynecology. So there's people called urogynecologists mm. who specialize um, in doing these kind of operations and treating um, these kind of people. But there's actually, so a lot of people talk about prolapse of the uterus, but it actually can be lots of different kinds of prolapse with different parts of the vaginal wall and different organs coming down, mm -hmm. whether it involves your urethra, your bowel, all this kind of thing. 
it doesn't always ultimately um, need to you need to have your um, uterus removed. There are lots of different operations that can be done. It really kind of de depends on what kind of um, result that you have with um, with using physio and also what your intentions are in terms of um, future pregnancies um, because as I said having a cesarean section isn't going to prevent you from getting any kind of um, further issues so actually just being pregnant um, is potentially going to put strain if we've done an operation mm. and involve removing the womb obviously um, so yeah there are lots of different solutions uh, it doesn't always mean that you need your womb removing um, and it's quite interesting because again this is something I learned just from really talking to patients is that I yeah. didn't realize how many people find the idea of having their womb removed horrifying mm. um, so many cultures for example where if you don't have a womb it kind of means that you're not not a woman and I think that's really important to um to really take on board because for us actually doing a hysterectomy, so removing the womb, isn't really a very complicated operation at all. So we just think, oh, you know, you could just have your womb removed. Um, but actually it's so important to listen to that woman and understand why that might not actually really be a solution for her. Yeah, and also like the womb, I guess has so much symbolic power as like the seat of fertility and people's identity. So that's, that's really interesting that, that yeah, not everyone would have like immediately clicked that who who does that kind of um surgery yeah um oh we've had even more questions fab okay so the next question we had in advance was um i would like to ask uh, the gyne geek if she has any views on the effectiveness of yoga as a tool to support women trying to conceive and if so in what way can it can it assist there are lots of promises out there about how yoga can help with fertility. I would love to hear an informed view as to if slash how much of this is based in fact. Yeah. Yeah. So this is kind of one of my bugbears about the wellness industry. Um, and first I'm of all, I'm very to interested to hear what you have to say about this. I'm a big fan of yoga. I probably should do yoga more. Um, so yeah. I, I don't have an issue with yoga, but I do have an issue sometimes with the kind of messages that people put out there. Um, and I think it can be really difficult for um, women who, for example, if you, you know, might buy someone's yoga ebook for fertility, mm. and then at the end of it, you're like, well, I'm, I'm still not pregnant. And after people are like, what, what did I do wrong? What, you know, wow. it's, it's really difficult because you can't missell something. There's no proof that, uh, for example, doing yoga is going to help you get pregnant because there's lots of reasons why people might not be getting pregnant. What I would say is that, and this is always really like an, another really kind of bugbear of mine, is that people often are told by doctors, just go and relax. Just relax and don't think about it and you'll get pregnant. Well, what a dumbass thing to say <laughs> because, wow. you know, that all this, all this couple wants is to have a baby. and you can't just say, oh, just relax. I mean, come on. That's just showing yeah. like whatsoever. But if you are super, super stressed, then it can affect your hormones because, so it's called the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. And that is how the body senses stress in the brain and the adrenal glands. Um, and, and the way in which your hormones change based on stress can affect your, um, your ovaries, which produce the hormones that we need to help us get pregnant. So if you're really stressed and your period's not coming or you know, you're, you're not ovulating because of that, then yes, absolutely. Um, that can stop you from getting pregnant. Um, is yoga, the best 
way of going about it. Well, if you personally find yoga helps you to relax, then that's great. But if you're like stressing, thinking, God, I haven't done my like five yoga sessions this week, then, you know, it might not really help. Um, so I think that it is important that we all find a way that we can relax. Um, and I you know yoga is great for women because it's a great way of strengthening up our muscles and our bones and our joints. Um, but I think it would be a bit of an oversell maybe to say that yoga on its own is going to help you get pregnant. I'm just, I'm really intrigued because personally, um, I haven't heard this claim from yogis like ever. So is it something that you've seen a few times then coming up, this idea of just, you know, doing a normal yoga practice? Because it's just, it's lovely and it's very great for your mental well-being. But again, not sure what magical medical properties it has in that well respect. i think that unfortunately lots of people say lots of different things about you know yoga and, and, and lots of holistic therapies which are, i'm very open to i, I have no problem with that but mm. you know for example i um i have a really good friend called shona virtue who's a yoga instructor she's great um and she tagged me in this story that someone had asked her whether it was true that a certain yoga position could help her get her period back thanks so much for listening to the trouble club podcast while podcasts are great, we prefer the live experience. We host events in London four to six times per month and all of our speakers just happen to be women. From evenings with Margaret Atwood and Gloria Steinem to our monthly news dinners and culture clubs, there's so much to enjoy and so many brilliant people to meet. Learn more by visiting our website at www.thetroubleclub.com or clicking the link in the description of this episode. Um, and so again, it's that kind of like, you know, wellness for overselling things might actually delay somebody from seeking medical mm. help that they actually might really need. Um, I think I, I mean, as I said, I'm very open-minded. I think a lot of doctors are, and it doesn't mean that you can't do these things alongside um, traditional therapies or even just having investigations. It's absolutely mm. fine. And I think it's fine to say, you know, look, I'm doing this. That's absolutely fine by me. And it, I could be wrong. I, I will also put that out there that, you know, just because I'm a doctor doesn't mean that everything I say is right. Um, but I just think that it can be a bit misleading and mm. what the, the kind of things that you might read online or on, on social media and often people kind of have a vested interest um, because they've got an ebook or a supplement to sell for example oh, i see okay this is this is helpful in a gap for me um we've got two questions from maria and christina um so ellie if you're able to maybe if we go to maria first if we're able if you're here maria it'd be lovely to hear your voice and ask Aha. Okay. Hello, Maria. Hi. It's really nice to meet you. I am from Costa Rica. Oh, oh wow. wow. <laughs> Thank you for coming. Yeah. yeah, it's like lunchtime here, but it's okay. I just eat later. I, oh, I just <laughs> wanted to see you. <laughs> um, go ahead. You had a, a question about uh, hormone disruptors? Yeah, it's because, you know, what's funny that here in Costa Rica, like the things that we talk about are a little bit different. I don't know why, uh, but the wellness industry, uh, it's a little bit different in some ways. Uh, so there are like a lot of, like a group of Instagram pages where they talk about how um, things in your shampoo or things in, I don't know, some food can be uh, hormonal disruptors, or even in nail polish. 
So I just wanted to, I don't know, know you now, know your opinion. Sorry for my English <laughs> um, about it. Yeah, this is something that Thanks, I get asked about quite a lot. Um, so yeah, there's lots of really scary things online about different um, chemicals. So um, salates are one that you often hear about, um, and then BPAs, which I just off the top of my head now can't remember what it stands for. But you know, lots of chemicals that are in very common things that we use that people say are hormone disruptors, um, and often they have a very good story behind them about how you know suddenly now these days we're all struggling to conceive, we're all getting endometriosis and whatnot, and that's you know sounds quite convincing, but I think we have to remember that we don't have very good evidence at a population level. If you look at these kind of chemicals in the lab, then you know there are some quite convincing studies that show that maybe these chemicals in very high quantities may actually be able to do that. But it's really difficult to show that the tiny, tiny quantities that we're exposed to every day are actually having that effect. And I often see the same thing written about non-organic tampons. Um, and so what I would say is that we really don't have enough evidence to show that in humans, the exposure that we have is causing these effects. It doesn't mean that it doesn't, maybe the studies haven't been done, but so far I haven't really seen <clears throat> convincing evidence. So what I would say is that if you are worried, then you know, if you can avoid them, of course, but don't feel bad that you're, for example, using a particular shampoo that you really like because likely it, that these chemicals are present in such a, such a tiny um, tiny quantity uh, and I think again it's really difficult to uh, slightly disagree with people putting that sort of scaremongering information out there when we really don't have proof. Amazing thank you Anita. Um, I, uh, Christina I think you've asked a question on um, the chat um, if you can let me or Ellie know if you want to ask it live or not, or I'll ask it for you. But whilst you respond, um, I will ask one of the anonymous questions, please, Anita. What are your thoughts on labiaplasty? Hmm. So labiaplasty is uh, basically plastic surgery on your um, vulva, so your down there bits. Uh, so because, you know, I want to be open, not everyone knows the terminology. So your, your vulva um, includes what we call your lips. So um, you've got your labia majora, which is the sort of like large um, fleshy area. And then the labia minora is the sort of more red, um, kind of more, looks like the inside of your mouth um, kind of bits. And often people will want to have this part chopped off or trimmed. And that's, often what labiaplasty is. Mm. Now, yeah, it's really difficult because the thing is that I've never really looked at somebody's vulva and thought, wow, you need a trim girl. It's just, you know, every, every vulva is different, okay? And they're not meant to be symmetrical. That's just sort of a myth. Um, and we also think that, you know, you shouldn't be able to see the labia minora, but that's, I think that, Pornography often has a lot to, um, to for that to play in that role, um, and you know, realistically, most people are not going to have labia that are too long. Um, interestingly, I went to a, a, a talk by um, a professor who 
is you know really into this topic and mm. she said that she noticed that over the last few decades more people are wearing more lycra um, having Hollywood and Brazilian waxes so there's no pubic hair to um, cushion the area and then cycling everywhere so basically she said um, if you think your labia are too long, you grow back your pubic hair. Well, okay, that's, you know, whatever you do with your pubic hair is completely up to you. But it's quite an interesting point. Mm. Um, I think it's difficult because, you know, a lot of the studies show that people are not happy with their um, labia after they've had the labiaplasty and you can't really put it back. Um, mm. it potentially um, result in scarring. There's lots of nerves around there. Um, so... If you are considering it, having it done, I would definitely go to somebody who really knows what they're doing and has vast experience in this. But I just want to really reinforce that if somebody is making you feel like your labia is abnormal, it's probably their opinions that are abnormal, not your vulva. Very nicely put. Um, Ellie, if we could come to you, Christina, um, that would be amazing. Thank you. Hi, Christina. Hi, everyone. Good evening. Evening. Can you hear me okay? I'm really sorry, I'm just outside. No, we can hear you perfectly. Go for it. Great. Well, thank you very much to the Travel Club for organising this. I've already learned tons just by listening to you. Um, and I completely agree that there is uh, education needed for young girls out there. Um, I've got a question about how stress is related to periods, because my experience since a very young age has been uh, a roller coaster basically but I'm in my 30s and just in the past year um, and I have to say that's four years since I've stopped taking the pill um, I would I would have a really I would I would have no periods uh, there was this period where I had no periods for three months then um, I got my period that lasted for about 20 days after 10 days I'll get another one that lasts the same and that was another quarter of the year and now uh, my periods are really heavy for, for a couple of days. Basically, I really have to be in a really close proximity of a toilet because mm -hmm. otherwise I, I really literally can feel my insides falling out of me. And I, I, I think it's due to stress, but every time I go to a doctor, it really depends again who sees you. Men, I don't want to be <laughs> sexist here, but uh, again, my experience has been, oh, you're a woman, you outgrow it, or... Um, you're overweight or you're underweight and there's always been those um, other um, issues that have been pointed out but I, I, I don't think I've ever been given a straight answer as to what my body is actually doing and is that normal so thanks very much mm. oh that doesn't sound very nice Christina I'm really sorry that you're going through that um, I think that First thing I would say is, so you, you asked about how stress can impact your periods and, and as I sort of alluded to before, um, your body senses stress um, through a hormonal um, pathway and all our hormones are connected. Um, so I think we've all heard of cortisol, which is the stress hormone, um, but there's lots of other hormones that are involved in the stress response like adrenaline or adrenaline, um, but they all feed into this whole cycle that also involves our ovaries so definitely if you're really really stressed then you know your periods can become irregular or stop completely or come all the time um, and you've kind of mentioned all of them um, which is really horrible um, I think that um, the other thing to say is that if you have really heavy periods then I would definitely go and 
see a doctor about that because there's lots of things that we can do and they don't all involve hormones because I know you just mentioned that you, you stop taking the pill, for example. The other thing I think a lot of people aren't really aware of is that your periods will change um, throughout your adult life. Um, and so your period when you're 16 isn't going to be the same as your period when you're um, 28 and when you're um, 40, for example. And that's not because we are necessarily going to the menopause. It's just because our hormone production throughout our life doesn't stay the same. It doesn't stay constant. Um, stress can also change how you feel in terms of sort of PMS symptoms. And I think that's something that we need to listen to women about more. Um, and, you know, PMS is always something that, oh, I'm just a hysterical hormonal woman. No, it's something that actually really affects people's lives. But I think the other thing is that we forget that um, stress doesn't have to be just kind of that acute psychological stress where you think, oh my God, I feel really anxious and really stressed. Stress is actually, you know, maybe having really bad quality sleep, not sleeping enough, having mm. an erratic diet. Um, drinking alcohol can make your body quite stressed and also will really impact on your sleep. Um, and I think that's quite important for people to be aware of. But I think, you know, also as doctors, I think we really need to get away from that kind of like, oh, you're just stressed. Because that's really not helpful, is it? Mm -hmm. It's really, it's really difficult. So yeah, stress can definitely impact your periods. Um, but I also would want to rule out other things. Um, so for example, you know, thyroid problems, for example, that's another common um, hormonal problem. Um, you know, lots of the things that I rule out before I say, you're just stressed. I think that's, that's just, yeah, that's really wrong. So I would recommend kind of like persevering um, and, and seeing where you get to, but just also remember that there are lots of other things in our life that the body experiences as stress. That's really helpful advice. Thanks, Anita. Um, and I think we've probably got time to squeeze in one more question. Um, and so one of our attendees um, would love some advice on where to start on um, perimenopause. Um, she's not there, or I assume she, um, I'm not there yet, but I have no idea of what help to ask for or sort of how to help myself in advance. Any advice would be great. So the menopause, um, is a sort of retrospective diagnosis. So we say that someone's gone through the menopause when they haven't had a period for one year. Um, and so you can only diagnose it after it's happened. Um, blood tests are not really very helpful. Um, we don't routinely check blood tests for the menopause um, after the age of 45, because the thing is that the hormones are fluctuating so much that you wouldn't really get a very precise response. Mm. Now, I think that we always, so, so, sorry, to be clear, the perimenopause is that period leading up to your periods stopping. Mm. And so some people actually will never have any kind of symptoms. They'll just suddenly be like, oh, periods have stopped, okay. But some people will have symptoms for months, some people even years. And it's not always what you think. So I think if you ask people, I don't know, maybe I'll do this one day. Ask people, you know, what are the common symptoms of the menopause? And I tell you, the most common things that people will say will be hot sweats and a dry vagina. But actually, I think some of the most common symptoms of the perimenopause, or, or you know, of menopause, are the problems that people face in terms of um, anxiety, sleep disturbance, 
um, mood changes, concentration is another massive one. Um, often people get sort of strange aches and pains. Um, and you know, that's where, again, I think that we need to learn more from women about what they're actually really experiencing. And often people will be fobbed off. And I think that's really terrible. Now, I think when it comes to um, helping yourself during the perimenopause, it's kind of my advice when it comes to lifestyle is kind of the same for everybody, um, whatever age you are, actually. Um, so it's really focusing on making sure that you are having a really good quality of sleep. You're having a really good diet. And, and when it comes to diet, my obviously, you know, I'm not a trained nutrition um, professional, but, you know, I just think, you know, make your plate as colorful as possible and make sure you're giving your body all those really good nutrients uh, and you know, because your, your body's a machine, you want it to last for as long as possible. So you want to, you know, get all those like lots of fiber, healthy fats, um, lots of nice protein, lots of plant based foods in there. Um, and then again, remember that, you know, this machine doesn't just need topping up with good fuel, you need to give it a good MOT. And so that's exercise. And so exercise is so important because it's going to help your mood. It's going to help you sleep better. It's so important to protect your bones and your joints. And so from a young age, we should all be doing some kind of um, muscle and strength building exercise because you don't get strong bones unless you load them. And that's why mm. we find women um, who are menopausal getting um, fractures, so getting broken bones because they're, they're, you know, your, your bones do naturally get thinner. Um, and you can never 100% prevent it, but you want to try and reduce the, the chance as much as possible. Um, and then, you know, the other thing is just that it's absolutely fine if you want to use some kind of medication. And I feel like there's a lot of people saying, you know, you, you don't need to take HRT because first of all, it's dangerous, but also because you can do all these things. But you know, you can have the most textbook perfect lifestyle. You can be a yoga instructor who like lives on a desert island. You can still have menopausal symptoms and you can still take HRT. Uh, and I think, you know, HRT is a massive su a subject. And we tend to always focus, particularly in the media, about all the side effects and all the, um, all the health risks associated with it. But actually, if you find the right HRT for you, um, you know, there are lots that are safe. And we never ever talk about the benefit that this has on mm. the real impact that this can have on people's lives. I'm not a pill pusher whatsoever, but I just want to make sure that people have all of the options available to them. And if you don't want to use it, that's absolutely fine. But, you know, just go back to the basics, make sure that, you know, you're, you're nailing all the basics. And then if you need help, we are there. Oh, amazing. I think that's a lovely way to, to wrap up this evening. I can see there's had a few more questions um, come in and I encourage you to um, grab Anita's book because I'm sure she has touched on all of these topics um, and also your Instagram is super informative um, and I know you also have stuff on your website. So please do go look up Guiding Geek online and um, yeah, Anita will be able to I'm sure she yeah I'm looking at these I'm sure there's a whole bunch that you've already spoken about before in terms of um fertility and and yeah and, and so, so I'm, I'm just looking through the questions quickly. yeah so um the um the thing about the fertility um I have done a um I've done a post on that before so there's a little I do some like terrible hand drawings on my Instagram I love your hand <laughs> they're so cute <laughs> 
uh, fertility and age. Um, but uh, yeah, so age at your first period isn't really um, very strongly correlated. Um, and I am a very much a fan of weights. Someone's asked that. I've got a few, yes. um, a few posts on my page about that. Um, I've just um, invested in a barbell um, this week. So yeah, I love weights. I think they're great. Um, they're not going to make you bulky. Um, and they're not going to make you full of testosterone. Uh, they're just, yeah. For me, I love them. And, you know, I think the other thing is that there's no best workout for any kind of women's health issues. Mm. It's what you're going to stick to and what you're going to enjoy. There's no point having a barbell taking up half your living room if you're never going to use it. Amazing. That's great. Um, and I agree because I always say this to people as well because, you know, obviously I'm a trained medical professional. Um, but yeah always always yeah I love this idea of, you know we're all looking after ourselves and getting the help when we need it um, so thank you so much Anita that's been really really wonderful um, really appreciate you giving up your Monday evening to be with us um, and to everyone else um, if you're not signed up to Trouble Club's mailing list please get signed up we have lots of lovely events coming up and you can follow us at the Trouble Club um, Anita your Instagram and Twitter is at Gyne Geek. That's right. right. Yeah, amazing. Um, so please do follow Anita, grab her book, listen to her audio book when it comes out, um, and, and spread oh, the word. Available on Amazon. Oh, amazing. So, and if yes. you like it, please, guys, could you like leave a little comment? Because some people write some really mean things, and it's really i just like to try and dilute them a little bit so yeah no we well we'll we'll do that on behalf of travel club we'll go leave some some positive positive vibes um and yeah it's just huge thank you need to have really really enjoyed this evening so glad we managed to get you in the schedule um so yeah huge thank you to everyone for coming and all your really thoughtful questions you were looking for trouble and you found it. We are a special society, a talks and dinners club where you can hear some of the finest voices talking on everything from politics to fiction. They all happen to be women. From evenings with Margaret Atwood and Gloria Steinem to our monthly news dinners and culture clubs, there's so much to enjoy and so many brilliant people to meet. Learn more by visiting our website at www.thetroubleclub.com or clicking the link in the description of this episode.